Welcome to episode 17 of the Indie by Design podcast, the show about games and the people who make them. In each weekly episode, we sit down with interesting people to talk about them, their work and their outlook on games. The Indie by Design podcast is brought to you by Stace Harmon and John Robertson. You can reach us on social media and on YouTube by searching Indie by Design on those platforms. And you can visit us at IndieByDesign.net where you'll find more episodes of the podcast and our book, Independent by Design, Art and Stories of Indie Game Creation. Check us out on patreon.com slash indiebydesign, where you can join our growing number of Patreon backers, helping to support and improve our podcast and get more people talking about games. Pledging is super easy and every contribution is very much appreciated. Amongst the Patreon rewards is additional podcast content and whole Patreon-only episodes to boot, so please do check us out at patreon.com slash indiebydesign. This episode of the podcast is hosted by me, Stace Harmon, and features Tim Conklin, creator of strategy title and digital board game Antihero. We discuss design inspiration, Steam reviews, AI programming, and curiously titled locations such as The Salty Nonce and Windy Bottom. Before all of that, however, we start this week's episode with talk of games that have made the leap from the physical tabletop to the virtual one. Games such as Settlers of Catan, Ticket to Ride, Talisman, Warhammer Quest, and many more besides and to what extent Tim played those games for the purposes of education, motivation, and inspiration for his own development journey of Antihero. It's funny, I kind of ignored them completely, and the reason is that I think that the UI in those games tends to be kind of a disaster. Like, mm. when I have looked at, especially especially a non-digital game that has you know been turned into a computer game form and it's not a game that i'm familiar with mm. screenshots of those games tend to just look like this crazy explosion of icons and you can understand how they got there because the way that you convey information and and board state and game state and and whatnot in a physical game is just much different you know you have tokens and you have dice and you mm. have things that are required to you know maintain that game state in the physical world that that just wouldn't make sense if you were designing a game uh f- you know for for a computer first mm. um and you know the your game's ui is i mean it live i you know i think games especially strategy games and especially turn-based strategy games really live and die on their user interfaces mm. um uh the so there were you know there there's sort of a number of different types of play testing that you can do um when you're making a game so i i spent a lot of time play testing the game with experienced antihero players so people that i brought on early and they would see you know iteration after iteration of the gameplay and would really internalize the mechanics and mm-hmm. um that sort of person doesn't care about the UI because they understand, you know, that that's going to improve. But when, you know, I would take Antihero to like PAX or something like that, and it would, you know, just be hundreds and hundreds of people coming through the first two, you know, tutorial levels or whatever and spending 15 minutes, like you can see all the ways in which your game, your game's interface just fails these, you know, fails new players. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I spent a lot of time. I mean, I, it almost sometimes it felt like all I was doing was UI design, UI iteration, um, and yeah. I so I can't say that I have played. I'm not a giant fan of those conversions. I mean, I mm. love that they exist, and I have no beef with them at all. It's just they're not the sorts of games that I like to play, and it's off. It almost always comes down to 
user interface. I'm really picky about things like little things like speed of animation and you know the like the position and size of UI elements on the mm, screen and mm. look and feel stuff that ta- that you can't even necessarily point exactly to it unless you sit down and think really hard about why this game is works well, you know, why why mm. it feels natural to play play this game on a computer and it doesn't feel natural to play this other one. But I think that that's that's something that these physical to digital translations will almost always suffer from unless there's a real uh, unless they're essentially redesigned as they move from, you know, the physical realm yeah. to the digital or vice versa. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think, and actually, in the list that I mentioned, um, as you were explaining that, I think there are there is a clear difference. And I think something like, um, so for something like Warhammer Quest, that was there was an element of that redesign. There was an element of you're not, um, I don't know, like you're not clicking on a depiction of a deck of cards to pick up a card you're you're doing it in a different way because of that reason because otherwise i guess you need real estate on the screen you need screen space in order to 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 picture a deck of cards just to be able to click on that thing and then you need a space for a discard pile and yeah and i i can that's an interesting that's interesting because it kind of i guess it helps me to understand the differentiation why certain ones don't work and like you say i think it's sometimes it's easy just to um, to think of it in terms of well that kind of doesn't work for me or it does work for me and not really be able to put your finger on what it is about it that does or doesn't work because the decision's already made um, and you just right. kind of yeah. move on you don't you don't it, unless you have a vested interest in making that thing better or in, in wanting to understand why it doesn't work you just shrug your shoulders and, and move on to the to the next thing um, that yeah I imagine also as a creator of one of those games like you're probably walking sort of a tightrope where you people are you know if you're if you're porting a hugely popular game like settlers of Catan or something Mm -hmm. to to pc you have a lot you there's a big audience for the physical version of that game and they're Mm -hmm. probably going to have very specific expectations about what the digital version looks like that may not be in line with what somebody who's just picking up the digital version and never played the physical. I, mm. I don't know for sure. That just that mm. seems like mm. it would be the sort of design that is sort of like fraught with you know dangers of making the game too unfriendly to new players and the danger of making the game too unfriendly for people who are you know really familiar with mm. other iterations. Mm. You know the thinking about this though, the one really obvious game actually that I think. D- like survived its translation from physical to digital incredibly well is words with friends, which is like another sort of like obvious touchstone for, for um, antihero because it got its turn structure down really well. I mean, Mm -hmm. and that's just a, that's just a function of, um, you know, Scrabble being very, very amenable to asynchronous um, and also having a very small number of UI elements. Mm. Uh, But yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. I think I was, Kind of whirring through the, the different the list of games that I was thinking you might say, and yeah, Scrabble is kind of the obvious, or Words with yeah. Friends, yeah, is, is I guess the obvious, uh, the obvious choice. So, with all of that in mind, I mean, you were kind of free of those constraints. You know, you didn't need to to uh, to consider that when designing Antihero. Do you think could Antihero go the other way? Do you think 
like that it would work as it exists now do you think it would work if somebody decided if you decided or if somebody came to you and said look we think this would work really well as a an actual digital uh, sorry an actual physical game like are there things that you can see in it that the decisions you've made that work for a digital product that wouldn't work or that would maybe work really well by but in contrast that uh, would or wouldn't work for a, a physical one is it I right guess, is, i mean is it enough of a board game i guess is almost the question to to be a physical product so the really tricky part about translating anti-hero to a physical board game would be the fog of war right so like there's yeah. all this there's this hidden information that everybody is looking at the same map obviously there are ways to do like fog of war on a shared map in physical games like battleship does it mm -hmm. but but um, you wouldn't really want to play a battleship version of anti-hero. That would just be a gigantic pain. <laughs> so I think that the fog of war would mean that if anti-hero was coming to, if there was going to be a physical version of it, it would look very, very different. And I think that, you know, essentially the map would have to be replaced with like piles of cards or something like that. Mm. I, I, I think that there would be, I, I think that it would essentially have to be a, an essentially different game that would share a number of the, you know, you mm. could have some of Antihero's combat and upgrading and, and, um, you know, certainly there, there are tons of ways to do hidden information in physical games. It's just, um, yeah, that so much of Antihero revolves around, um, exploring the map, revealing parts of it and, you know, seeing where your, vision of the fog of war intersects with your opponent's vision of the fog of war. Uh, and that would, that would almost make me feel like, you know, I would, I would approach it just in a very, very different way and, and probably start by throwing out the map and seeing how I could do exploration and movement in a very different way. And to be honest, like I have, it's certainly something that I've thought about a little bit because, you know, people, uh, will, you know, suggest it at, mm -hmm. at conventions and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But, um, it would, it would not be an easy translation for me at least. Mm. Yeah, no, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, and I, I was thinking, I guess as a, as a single player, maybe they, there could be some sort of tile based, like, like where you're revealing the map kind of but then you're not able to then make the informed decisions or, or partially informed decision, decisions that you can make uh, with the fog of war. Cause you can at least still see, landmarks and you know you know that if you go over there there's the edge of the map and there's a, an assassination target so yeah I get, yeah i can see that that would be a perhaps a sticking point that would require yeah. kind of a, a redesign of of that element for sure. i think also just you know the so the game you can play the same map over and over again and it gets reshuffled each time you mm -hmm. play at the locations mm -hmm. of of the buildings you know in particular is like the big thing that changes from play session to play session and if you were doing a physical version you would want to make that setup as painless as possible because you don't want to you mm -hmm. know if you had to if you had to set up even a small anti-hero board by hand you know with with all of that hidden information like it would probably take you 20 minutes mm -hmm. um and so you know like cards again make that much easier because you can shuffle a pack of cards really easily um mm. so yeah i would i would lean towards yeah trying to use cards in clever ways um but i you know the thing is like i'm not i'm not even necessarily a gigantic turn-based strategy person like i really like turn-based strategy games um 
but I also really like action games, and um, I don't know. I I think that part of the reason I decided to do a turn-based strategy game with Antihero was to prove to myself that I could. I sort of mm-hmm. saw it as, I don't know, maybe like a higher form of game design, and I was not sure that I would be able to pull it off. Because, like, you know, when you're making an action game, you have the variables of, you know, the player's reaction time and their reflexes and perception that are off the table when you're making a turn-based strategy game. Mm. Um, and whatever I work on next, I would really like to bring those variables back just because I underestimated quite how difficult turn-based strategy <laughs> is to design. Well, I mean, it's it's nice if you have the option to... Uh, to broaden your horizons i guess in that in that sense of of doing something else then it's nice to be able to to dip in and out of the different forms of um or different genres and and it not just be that you know you will become the turn-based strategy guy you yeah this is a this is a a kind of a hopefully the start of something uh huge maybe you know something that allows you to to just make many different types of games and 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 in different styles and different genres and work with different people. And the, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and I think the um one of the you know, you sort of met, you alluded to earlier about the fact that this is a an ongoing thing it's not like now that the game is released um that's the end of any sort of work on it. But I guess it, at some point there will need to be that end where it is it's as done as you you have to walk away it's as done as it it can possibly be i mean are there are there things for you not in terms of kind of extra modes or you know dlc or anything like that but are there things for you with the existing game um i mean i'm sure you have a you know priority list but things for you that need to be done um that are kind of niggling that i don't know the kind of thing that you you don't see until you release the game and then you hear a load about a particular element of it that that you either didn't see or maybe you did see it but you just didn't get time to do it before the game was released like is there stuff that you you kind of you must get to because it's it's a a particular bugbear of yours at the moment yeah there's a bunch of you know pretty boring stuff that um that is on my plate right now but that i think you know can't will hopefully move the needle for the game in Mm, mm. in positive ways um the big one is localization which we just did not have time to get to Mm. um so, you know, I will translate it to a bunch of languages and, you know, we, we have had a bunch of players from other countries, but I imagine that we are limiting our access to those players because, yeah, it's only in English right now. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Um, it's funny, a number of people started asking for key bindings and hotkeys, which <laughs> totally makes sense because, you know, it's a PC game and we have keyboards and we use them for tons of games. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that I always thought of this as like absolutely you would only want to use a mouse like it's designed to be you know purely Mm. mouse driven Mm. um because it you know it's also designed for touch screens like that's that's the other big thing that that i'm Mm. working on right now is getting the the phone and tablet version ready to go um but yeah i mean it turns out there are people who you know like really like to use their steam controllers and i guess that that i don't actually have one but i think that the Steam controller, you can just bind buttons on it to key presses and stuff like that. And that's just, that's something I totally did not even think of when I was making the game because I don't have that hardware. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that was an oversight that I am correcting at this very moment. Um, 
you know, just adding adding hotkeys, making it a little bit more friendly for uh, for people who are playing with Steam controllers. Um, mm. And then, you know, there's a particular level in the campaign that uh, has been described quite fairly as a major difficulty spike. It's level six, I think. Um, okay. It's yeah, called three corners. Anyway, that's a ga- That's that needs some tweaking. That's also on my list of things to fix imminently, hopefully this week. And you know, the other thing that I'm going to continue working on, as we're also doing, you know, these other big things of like localization and the tablet and phone versions, is just continuing to to tune the AI, mm. Um, mm. because now that I'm getting much more player feedback, I can, I I have a better sense of how people are, are interacting with it than I did before. Um, yeah. And, you know, and then finally, there are a number of new mechanics that I would really, really like to explore. Uh, there's no specific timetable on them, but there are a few new business types that, I, um, that I'd like to add to the game. I think, you know, one of the... So the way the game works right now is every time you play a map... Well, so most maps are designed around a fixed set of businesses. So, like, if you're playing the big city map that map always has two churches on it. And churches are one of the ways that you get victory points in the game. And so mm-hmm. if you know ahead of time that there are two churches on this map, that's going to change the way that you play the game. But if we add more business types, then we can have maps that, you know, Big City may have one church or it may have two churches. And it depends on the role of, of you know, the the RNG, you know, seed yeah. at the when the map is created. Um, so... Yeah, there are a couple. There, there are two reasons to add more business types. One is just there are like more mechanics that I'd like to explore around other you know characters in the game, and then the other is yeah, adding some like additional uncertainty and um, to existing maps and stuff like that. And then of course you know like there are tons of ideas for you know each multiplayer map has its own gimmick, and there are all these you know other yeah. gimmicks, both sort of like mechanical and aesthetic gimmicks that I'd like to explore. And there's also a lot of a lot of uh, requests for like a two v two or you know three or four player free for all. Mm-hmm. Um, that so it, more than it, anything it really is just never ends, right? Like, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> just but like... these are all things that I want to do so badly, <laughs> and I am such a bottleneck to the process because I'm the only designer, I'm the only programmer, and uh, yeah. So yeah, there's there is quite a lot more to do, which is nice. You know, it means that I. I don't yet have, I, I haven't yet gotten to the point where it's like, oh my God, I spent four years on this thing and now it's done. Like, what do I do with my life? Like, mm, mm. I can string that along for a little bit longer at least. <laughs> Whilst you're figuring out what, what else comes Yeah, next. exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, cool. I think, so just as a, as a last couple of things, um, I think the, you mentioned uh, like the the Steam reviews or the just user reviews in general, and also mm-hmm. the the critical reviews. Is there and also how making these improvements or, or adding new things and, and t- making tweaks that will have uh, an impact in terms of the user reviews, and the that will hopefully nudge the needle up rather than, than down. You know, you want them to go yeah. in a positive direction. But that's something that can continue to evolve, and it's kind of a, you know, it's like a living, um, uh, a living review process and review um, framework, whereas the critical reviews tend to be very much, the game comes out, it gets reviewed, and then that's it. 
Um, right. And there might be, you know, somebody might write something about it in a couple of months' time about, you know, that it might be something that somebody comes to late and all the rest of it. But the that kind of sense of the user reviews sort of adding the, the longer tail to it than the critical reviews do, is that something that you... Um, is that something that you, I don't know, battled in any way or, or kind of fretted about? Because I know I've spoken to, we recently spoke to Alex Thomas, who is uh, one of the co-founders of Stoic, who made the Banner Saga games. Yeah, and we share we yeah. share a publisher. Oh, okay, right. So, yeah, there we go. That makes sense. Uh, and he talked about how he's released Killers and Thieves, and um, which has some vague, I guess, the thematically as it shares some some uh some themes with with anti-hero but he talked about that thing of like once the game's out there if you don't get the critical coverage the, the press coverage kind of right at the beginning then it sort of misses its you sort of miss the boat and it's, it's there and gone is that something in your experience that you um have had to deal with in terms of I don't know just making sure that the game was getting in front of people or is that sort of is that why you have a a publisher and you kind of just leave that that stuff to them where's the sort of the division I guess between making sure the game's getting in front of enough people and um and actually getting on with just making the game because that's what you yeah I mean they were both so as we got near versus evil is the publisher mm -hmm. and yeah, they, so they also do the banner saga and they got involved about a year ago, just over a year ago. And that's absolutely like something that, you know, just terrifies me. Like you want to capitalizing on, on press or near your launch is super mm -hmm. important for mm -hmm. exactly the reason you just said. Um, the, one of the things that we did, and I think this is actually really common, especially in the AAA world, but I had not experienced this before, is we hired a consulting company to basically do like a a, a pre-review of the game. Like they did a mock review, essentially. Mm -hmm. So they looked at the game. They did a little bit of market analysis, um, you know, to find out other games that they thought would, you know... A, other existing games that would appeal to, you know, similar audiences mm -hmm. and gave some pointers on how best to market to those people. Um, and we're also looking at the game's difficulty and its modes. And they suggested a number of things. Um, like there's a house rules option in Antihero mm -hmm. where you can mm -hmm. configure, you know, a bunch of the, you can basically just tweak a bunch of parameters um, and make a custom multiplayer game that way. And that wasn't a feature that I had planned on having, but, you know, it was something that they said, players who your audience is probably going to want this and you know mm. this is something like you should definitely if it's not going to take you a million years like invest the time it can you know it, it will pay off the other interesting thing that they did was they very strongly advised me not to market the game as a 4x strategy game mm. um and so you know like civilization was one of my major design touchstones when I, especially when I was beginning work on the game, but you know, truth be told, I'm not actually a gigantic 4X fan. I like the civilization games, but they're most of the other games in the genre that I've tried, like have felt too similar to civilization or just mm -hmm. too mm -hmm. sort of overwrought and complex. And it's just, um, so I, I don't have, I'm not like a hardcore 4X person. Um, and you know, they're, 
their advice was like, if you call your game a 4X, it comes with a huge number mm. of expectations, mm. some of which Antihero is deliberately avoiding, you know, fulfilling. Mm. Mm. Um, and so that's when we started, you know, really talking about it as a digital board game, which, it, you know, which is sort of so obvious in hindsight. But it took, um, it took you know, this sort of like external mm. set of eyes to, to get us there. So, you know, the, um, I took this. I took the game on on the road many, many times. I think I sh- I've shown it at five paxes, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, and then we we had these mock reviews, and we you know we sent the game out to um, YouTube streamers several months before the game launched, and hosted this like charity tournament. Um, mm-hmm. And so there were a number of things that we did before launch to gauge player response. Um, to you know to mm. yeah to try to ensure that we had a successful launch mm. i guess that's one of the the things that um when you put it out there for the press and when you put it out there for players um although you know both are going to have a, if you call it a 4x game both are going to have their own expectations the press and players are going to have ex- expectations of that but the, because it has that living that kind of living review process I, I mentioned with with the users that it's not quite as stuck in the mud that it, like it gets branded as this one thing and then that's it and that's what it is forever right. more. It can actually adapt and people can actually come to it, find out what it is, and then say, well, you know, it's described like this, but it's not like that at all. It's it's kind of a, a different thing. That's and I, I suppose that's just a, a long-winded way of saying that the the user reviews, player player feedback, player kind of pub. Uh, publicity is just a massively important part of of this and and of course any any game release because if it's not getting word of mouth then i guess it's not it's not um like it almost doesn't exist if it's not right. something that people are talking about then it's it's not something that people are playing so yeah that's it's an interesting yeah, yeah. absolutely and i think you know early access is a pretty big development in how games, uh, you know, in, in how games go through that process. Like we'd mm. actually did, I deliberately avoided early access on steam because, um, and I don't actually, in hindsight, I'm not sure if this was the, the right decision or not. I think the jury's still out, but, um, we did an early access on itch.io that mm-hmm. was very key limited. We kept it pretty far under the radar. You're under the radar. If you're on itch, <laughs> just by virtue of only being on itch, you know, like yeah. most people don't know about the platform. Mm. Um, but I wanted to avoid the, I, I've heard people say that you only get one launch and if you have mm. an early access on steam, that's your one launch. And then you're not going to get as much coverage when your game hits 1.0. And I think mm. that that's probably not true a hundred percent of the time, you know, like there are, there are games like darkest dungeon and, you know, mm-hmm. prison architect, like games that had hugely successful early access phases and continue to get written about, um, once they, once they hit 1.0. But I, I think it's, it's probably pretty sound advice for most games, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that the game was in as good shape as, you know, we could reasonably expect it to be before the press really looked at it at all, you know, beyond just showing it at PAXs and stuff like mm-hmm. that, where mm-hmm. people only spend 10 or 15 minutes. Um, but I would, I, th- I think that Antihero was not a great candidate for an early access on Steam because it's not a game that's about a lot of stuff. You know, it's not, it's not like, a, 
It's not like a procedurally generated roguelike or, you know, like a a, mm. uh, a a game that you can, it like a survival, you know, a survival game where you can sort of add, continue adding more elements to it. Like Antihero is about a really small set of like really tightly balanced and integrated systems. Um, but I would love to do a game that is kind of the opposite of that, just, you know, and, and experience the early access thing on Steam because player feedback is so exciting to get, especially when you get player feedback that, um, you know, people who are engaged with the game and are genuinely invested in helping you make it better. I mean, there's like, there is no better feeling as a creator than that. Um, mm. And so, yeah, that's where we are now with the game. Um, but, you know, I really like the way that feels, and I want to, I want to get there sooner with whatever I do next. Yeah, but I mean that again actually echoes um, going back to Alex Thomas again. Echoes what he talked about that that Killers and Thieves had a very deliberately low key kind of stealth launch almost, and he deliberately didn't go early access way. And he he talks about Darkest Dungeon as well. And part of the reason he didn't go through early access was because of the experience that uh, I think it's Red Hook, isn't it, that do that do. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, Darkest Dungeon, the experience that those guys had through early access, that there was a lot of, I think a lot of stuff comes with, not just an early access game, but I guess whenever you're putting something out there and and asking for it to be appraised, and, and, and you can put as many caveats on it as you like, that it's not finished, it's still in development, and all of that is true, that's not, you know, those aren't excuses, that is a, a genuinely true state of the game, but people still come to it uh, with their own expectations, and so it can be, I think, quite a um, potentially quite a stressful thing to go through. But the flip side of that is, as you say, that, that you can get some extremely valuable feedback and some, and and it's an exciting thing to have people, you know, uh, enthusiastically, for, for better or worse, enthusiastically discussing your game and and talking about it and saying what's great about it and what's not great about it it's it's uh yeah it's kind of a it's, it's not the sort of thing that you get from perhaps a typical game launch and i don't know if some of that's because you're asking people to be involved in some way in the design process or that's how they feel at least they they actually have a a, a chance to contribute towards making something um better hopefully yeah Um, yeah i mean and i think if you do it right like you really will make it a lot better as a result of those mm. players i mean at the very least like you're always you know there's a finite number of hours that you can spend before you have to release a game and you're always making decisions about what to prioritize and if you have feedback from the people who are going to be or are your biggest fans then that's sort of an it's an obvious way to help triage those decisions Welcome to the Indie by Design podcast halftime show, which is just long enough for you to locate a pint of your favourite beverage and an overpriced meat pie. If you're interested in gaining more insight into game design and game designers, be sure to check out our website, indiebydesign.net, where you'll find more episodes of the Indie by Design podcast and our book available for purchase, plus lots more besides. If you have suggestions, questions or feedback on the podcast, you can tweet us at Indie by Design or get in touch via facebook.com slash Indie by Design. If you like what we're doing and have time to leave us a short review on your podcast platform of choice, that would be very much appreciated. You can also check out what we're doing over at patreon.com slash indiebydesign and directly help us to make the podcast better, as well as bag some additional Patreon-only content. 
On to the second part of our discussion with Tim Conkling now, and we begin with Tim discussing the development period for Antihero and the telling differences between the game reviews from professional critics and those from Steam users. So I spent uh, about four years on the game, which is about two years longer than I expected. Um, but yes, seeing happy reviews come in is an enormous, enormous relief. All of the reviews that I have read... So, so I mean, there are two types of reviews that I am, uh, you know, hitting refresh on a lot. <laughs> One is the, you know, critical reviews from websites and magazines. And then the other is Steam reviews from users. Mm. And they are very different. Um, one of the so the critical reviews have been more or less um, universally positive. It's sitting at like an eighty-two percent right now, I think, on Metacritic, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it is slightly lower than that on Steam. I think it's like seventy-nine percent thumbs up or something like that. But the okay. the presumably there's many more of them though on Steam, right? I guess there's. Is there a greater number of reviews on Steam? Than oh there yeah, yeah. I mean, critic- yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but the you know, I think one of the big differences between people who play and review games for a living and people who are you know consumers of games is that uh, critics you know tend to seek out things that are new and that they haven't seen before and are putting less weight on things like, you know, total playtime of a campaign, for example. (laughs) Whereas there are a lot of consumers, and I totally understand this, who are, you know, they are looking for value for their money, which is something that, Mm. you know, a professional critic does. That's just not part of Mm. their personal Mm, equation. Yeah. 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 And that's, I mean, that's quite a big thing. And I think there's... Professional critics, I think, um, for the most part, do well to bear that in mind. That for for them, it's not something that generally they've had to spend their own money on. But generally, for somebody who is going to be playing the game for fun, say that that it will be something they have to spend money on. And I know that reviews generally try to keep that in mind. But do you think there's a is I mean, it's quite a difficult thing to do, I guess, if you review games for a living and you get all of your games for free then it's quite a difficult thing to to retain that kind of sense of um value for money perhaps like because 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 there is no money side of it it's just a right and i game. think you may also put emphasis on yeah um like new and unique experiences and the sort mm. of like quality over quantity thing and which is not to say that there aren't you know steam reviewers who who are I like that as well. I mean, there are plenty mm-hmm. of people who appreciate, you know, smaller games. One, I think one of the challenges for Antihero is that it has actually a very robust multiplayer component. So there are three mm-hmm. different multiplayer modes. You can play it in real time, what we're calling live match. You can play this sort of like, you know, asynchronous play by email mode uh, called mm-hmm. the casual match. And then there's a local hot seat mode if you don't have an internet connection or, you know, just want to share the keyboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and... A huge, a huge amount of my development and design time was spent on the multiplayer, which is sort of where my heart lies when it comes to mm. Antihero. My the original, like sort of elevator pitch to myself uh, four years ago was I I wanted to make um, Civilization meets Hero <laughs> Academy. So like I wanted to take the sort of you know for like the four X ethos mm. um, and boil down its core into a game that can be played in you know two minute chunks of time and that Mm. um enough of the game state is sort of like revealed 
you know, on the on the game's map and easily easily sort of like visually parsable that you can come back to, you know, a game that you started yesterday and it won't take you too much time to sort of like, you know, get back up to speed context wise about what you were doing. Um, And so that was, you know, that's what drove the, yeah, the design and the first probably like three years or so of development was just getting, so I took a very multiplayer first focus to the design of the game because, Mm -hmm. um, well, because I'm a solo developer, and so it was much easier for me to, like, you know, play test and balance the game uh, when I was playing it with somebody, and you know, we could like, sure. talk about yeah. what was working and what wasn't. Um, and also, like, multiplayer first sort of forces you to get the the balance of the game right. You can't you can't have an AI, you know, cheating. Uh, mm. You're just playing against a human. And so, yeah, I mean, so basically the multiplayer is the game, was the game's focus, and, but I really wanted, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of Hero Academy. I played, you know, I played that game nonstop for about two years when it came out. And, mm-hmm. um, but it was sort of lacking, you know, a robust single player mode. And it seemed, even though it was a great multiplayer game, there are a lot of people who are not going to want to jump into an online PvP game until they've, you know, had the chance to learn the ropes in, you know, a single player campaign. So that yeah, was, sure. that was the motivation there for anti-hero. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, yeah, I think that's a key thing that it, it is, um, that the two for me, from what I've seen of it so far, the two modes for me, the multiplayer, the single player do stand alone as separate modes. They're not as is the case in with some games. And as is sometimes the criticism of, you know, even the big things like Call of Duty that sometimes gets called out for, well, basically the single player is just the training mode for the mm-hmm. multiplayer. There is, of course, there are elements of that because you're learning the mechanics, you're learning what units do what and, and how it works. But it is very much, I feel like if you wanted to, like if you didn't ever want to play multiplayer, despite it being a multiplayer sort of focused or multiplayer first game, if you didn't want to play multiplayer, you could still buy it, play single player, and it would it would absolutely work. In the same way that I guess that a board game that you buy, you could buy and play solo, um, assuming that it has solo rules. You can buy and play that solo, and you might be missing out on the, on the multiplayer stuff. But it's it's not a if you're not going to enjoy every part of this, or if you're not going to experience every part of this, then it just doesn't work. And that's is, is that quite a, when you when you do focus on kind of the multiplayer first in this instance, is that quite a difficult thing to get the single player running right or kind of has all the work been done in the in the multiplayer part and the sort of the ai program is actually the the easy bit quote unquote um so certainly as far as the game design was concerned you know the design was absolutely locked down by the time i started well you know i say absolutely locked down i continued tweaking you know the rules and and balance you know up until almost release but for the most part like in in the broad strokes it was very much locked down by the time that i started single player and the plan originally was to have single player simply be the the ai skirmish mode which is essentially like Mm -hmm. it is very much like what the online mode is it's just that you're playing against a a, an ai instead of a computer i mean instead of Mm -hmm. a human but there's no um, there's no story-driven campaign there. And I I decided to add this, yeah, the story-driven campaign, um, both because I wanted to, you know, flesh out the characters uh, in the game a little more and give people some more context, and also to make it a better, more interesting value proposition for those people mm. who are 
going to stick with single player only. Um, that said, <laughs> the AI, which is not perfect, uh, and I'm still working on it, um, was really hard because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and, you know, it's funny. There's so much about game development that is um, well understood and well discussed. So if you want to do anything that has to do with rendering or audio mm -hmm. or, you know, like if you want to build a first-person shooter, that's a hugely, hugely complex piece of software. And there are so many tutorials, you know, on, on how to do every single, you know, every single mm -hmm. thing that goes into that. Physics engines and, you know, networking. And, um, and it's funny that, I mean, AI... AI is a funny term because it means, I think, a different thing in the software, mm. in the, the larger yeah. software industry than it does in, in um, game development. Um, but the sort of AI work that goes into games, first of all, is incredibly varied. You know, the, um, the AI that goes into a game like Grand Theft Auto, I think, probably looks almost nothing like the AI, <laughs> you know, with... with Save for some like super high level, you know, really basic pathfinding algorithms and stuff like that. It just looks absolutely nothing like the AI that goes into making a turn-based board game. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, the AI was a challenge because it was a lot of, um, you know, feeling around in the dark. Uh, not There just aren't that many papers out there on, you know, how best to approach this sort of thing. So that mm. was... That was um, me making it up as I went along and then just tuning it and tuning it and tuning and tuning it and building tools to help me visualize, you know, why the AI was making certain decisions. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's a piece of software, so it's going to continue getting updated. Um, and, mm. yeah, there's definitely some more work on the AI that I'm going to do before we put the game to rest. So, and, and this is the thing, like... It sounds almost like you. So you build the game, you build the the structure, you build the the rules, you build the the goals and the aims and and the win conditions. And then are you are you effectively kind of teaching the AI how to play the game rather than telling it to prioritize certain decisions in certain situations? Or or are, like can you not really separate those? two things is it are they sort of one and the same well so there there are forms of ai that are about you know genuine machine learning where essentially the ai retunes itself as it is uh you know it has like with a neural net you have um like abstractly these sort of like layers with connections between them and you have mm -hmm. values that um that are propagated through those layers and they, and there's a training process that, um, mm. you know, allows the AI to reconfigure itself. Like this is like machine learning stuff that, you know, like, uh, when your, your phone is able to, you know, recognize a face or something like that. Like maybe that's mm. done with mm. machine learning anyway, totally different than the sort of thing that I did with antihero, which is a much more basic, I think it's called like an expert system where it really is just like, teaching the AI a bunch of priorities. And the, um, it's the way that the AI works in Antihero is that there are these tiny little, you know, chunks of code that are called experts. And each of them is responsible for um, making requests uh, related to some small component of the game. So mm -hmm. there's an expert that just deals with gangs because gangs have... 
a number of you know rules about how they work and and strategies about you know how and when you want to deploy them and mm. you know there's an expert about scouting and an expert about your economy and an expert that has to do with buying upgrades and an expert that tries to you know get towards victory points um mm. so there are probably you know 10 or 12 of these experts and what they do is um they all look at the the game state they prioritize all of this all of the actions that they could perform um and then they submit those as requests to these like lower level systems that handle um interactions on the game board and handle mm -hmm. uh purchases um from the upgrade store and recruiting units and whatnot and so you know essentially everybody's saying i want to do this i want to do that and here's here's how important my request is um and then these lower level systems process all of that and see what they can handle and what they can't and there are other requests that are derived as a result of those so it's um it's actually pretty simple at like a high level conceptual level and but the result of you know thousands and thousands of decisions that are being made um is that the ai behaves you know in in a way that's not entirely predictable and that you know can mm. lead to like interesting scenarios mm. so then when you're when you're tuning that for something like the difficulty level um is that a is that a question of having kind of like a completely separate set of requests for each of those experts or is it a sort of a case of sometimes just deliberately ignoring certain requests that are being made in order to make the game easier or to assess if you to go the other way if you're making it harder um, I'm not sure what that would look like, but to assess more variables or more perhaps what the players inputting as well. Like, how does the actual? How do you get the? How does how does it go from being easy to hard? I guess is the the simple question. Yeah, it's actually so. Um, it's very much like the second thing you said, where the game is sort of built around the AI is built around hard difficulty. That's like the that is its that's its base difficulty level, and then normal mm -hmm. and easy are derived from hard and they essentially make less optimal decisions more frequently. Um, okay. And then easy mode will also like deliberately ignore certain categories of requests. Uh, so mm -hmm. that normal and hard difficulty will, one of the big things in the game is um, managing your gangs. Your gangs are units that level up over time and um, they can be pretty fragile so losing a gang can be can you know be a big swing, especially if it happens mm, in the mm. late game. Um, and understanding you know when and how to seek out you can sort of intuit where your opponent's gang might be because we're um, you know there's a fog of war, but you can see silhouettes of characters mm. in that fog of war, and you can occasionally see oh a silhouette just like was attacked and they and they fell. So you know chances are good that there's like a gang over there. So that's the sort of um, that is the sort of decision that, like, normal and hard mode, you know, are, are making requests for, like, scout over near the area oh, okay. where, the, yeah. where this guy, this silhouette just died, whereas easy mode uh, just does not make that sort of request. Mm -hmm. And so the, and the gangs, like you mentioned, the gangs, every time um, you kill somebody with a gang they then get a choice of upgrades and there's three different choices to make yeah. so is that you know again with the sort of the difficulty levels how are those choices being made in terms of um is there considered to be 
an optimal path, an optimal upgrade path, kind of irrespective of anything, or or are there certain situations where it will take, uh, you know, the the gold upgrade over the damage upgrade, or or whatever it might be. Yeah. So it does. I mean, it tries to it tries to reason about that. Um, so when it comes to you know deciding whether gold or damage is more important, it's looking at like the overall health of the of its own economy. You know, like am I gold poor right now? If so, then maybe mm. I want to upgrade my my gold. Um, and then also looking at all of the, you know, targets on the board that it wants to attack, especially assassination contract targets. Um, and mm. so if there's a, an assassination contract that it thinks it might be able to get next turn, it is more likely to put, you know, a point into damage. Um, mm. so it's, yeah, it's a bunch of like little, little decisions like that, that are, um, thrown into the mix. And then, uh, you know, it's, I mean, the AI is definitely, uh, it's reflective of how I think about strategy in the game, which is actually, Mm. you know, it turns out uh, I am not a super good player of Antihero. Like, I get my ass handed to me all the time (laughs) in multiplayer, um, which is, you know, which is funny and and interesting and not something that I really expected. Um, And so I think, you know, it would be interesting to have somebody else who now that the game is out there and we're getting some, you know, players who are really, really into it and are playing it at an incredibly high level um, mm. I, uh, to, you know, give input into how the AI is weighting <laughs> these different decisions. Cause you know, I think that would, that's definitely a way we could, we could push things further. Mm. Is that a, is that quite a, although it's, it's perhaps an, an odd, or may be considered an odd thing for you to be being beaten at your own game for you personally, is that quite a, nice thing that people are kind of working this out and and something you've worked on for so long but that people are so invested in it that they're putting the time and effort into working out the best way to to defeat their opponent be it some random person online or be it the actual designer of the game absolutely yeah i mean one of my one of my core play testers is a, a younger brother of mine who's into board games and is very analytical in how he thinks about things and you know, when we play physical board games together, he's the sort of person that everybody gets really annoyed at because he'll, you know, he'll sit and think for like 10 minutes before he makes his move. And everyone's like, make your damn move already. Um, and we would, you know, we would do just a lot of one-on-one playtesting to figure out game balance. But um, I would also have him, you know, talk me through because he would almost always beat me. And I'd have him talk me through what his strategies were and we f- and we discovered things that you know were imbalanced in the game as a result like mm, mm. there was a point where gangs could generate way way more money than they do now and he was you know he like is the sort of person who finds those optimal paths to victory and exploits them mm. um and that's mm. a super valuable sort of play tester to have mm. yeah for sure and, and that's that kind of brings it round to the probably the what would have actually been the more uh, natural place to start, I guess, which is the the whole board game question. But that is our well. Let's start with: Was Antihero always going to be for you? Was it always going to be a uh, digital board game esque title? Was it, was did it ever look like anything other than it than it is now? Not in terms of visuals, but in terms of the kind of the structure of the game. Um. It looked more, well, in the earliest days when I was just prototype, when I really had no idea what the game was going to look like beyond my Civilization Meets Hero Academy pitch, Mm. um, it was, I was trying to make it more like Civilization. And it was, 
really hard to squeeze all like the entire essence of forex strategy into mm. a game with the constraints that I was like really certain I wanted of, you know, this needs to be playable in asynchronous multiplayer settings and turns should not take more than two minutes. And that means that you, you know, you can never really have more than like four or five units on the board, you know, at mm. a time. And mm. it also means like you kind of want, um, you know, in civilization, the beginning of a game of civilization, like you frequently have turns where you literally hit just end turn because you're waiting Absolutely. for a unit yeah. to, re- <laughs> you know, to get built or you're yeah. waiting for a new research or something like that. Um, so, and then at the end of a game of civilization, you have turns that are taking you an hour because you're trying to, you know, marshal this gigantic army across the map and you're dealing with, you know, 18 different civilizations. Anyway, um, Antihero needed to be, it turns needed to be more or less, you know, the same, not, not exactly the same complexity at the beginning and mm-hmm. end of the game, but um, I was certain that I never wanted turns where you just did nothing and hit end turn. And similarly, I didn't want turns where, you know, you had to strategize for half an hour because you were moving 75 different units around the map. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but it took me a long time to get to it it took me a long time to figure out what what my inspiration from civilization and games like it should be mm. and where mm. i needed to diverge and so there was a long time when antikyo just wasn't any fun um and that was that was you know the early days of just feeling around the design space and, you know, figuring out every once in a while, figuring out, oh, okay, this, you know, this makes it a little bit more fun and then chasing that. Um, mm. But yeah, it took a very long time. The game actually, it didn't start as a game about thieves at all. It was, I was using stolen Warcraft 2 assets for my prototyping <laughs> assets. And so it, you know, just naturally sort of lent itself to a high fantasy feel. So you were sniping orcs and elves from a blimp that you were flying around the, the battlefield. Um, but yeah, you know, mechanically, it also changed quite a lot just because I didn't have a super strong sense. I, I had broad strokes ideas, but not a super strong, strong sense of how to get there. Mm. And that, so, so, yeah, see, this is an interesting thing. I think the the visual identity of any title, when that starts to come together, and that's usually, or not usually, but that's sometimes the point where, in the case of a lone designer, that's perhaps sometimes the point where you hire a professional artist and mm-hmm. they, they kind of update all of your kind of slightly uh, sketchy kind of placeholder art and it starts to take on a, a far stronger um, visual identity. And I'm always interested in, in that point and whether or to what degree that starts to inform the design and vice versa and, and how much the design informs the actual visual identity because I, I feel that with a lot of games it's it's a, a natural thing that you could like with Antihero I feel like you, you could take out all of the visual assets replace them with something else and it would work in some areas and it wouldn't work in other areas because you'd have to re you'd have to just rejig things it wouldn't make any sense that you have these people occupying buildings you know that that's like well who are they what why are they doing that What's, right what what are these units so was there elements of that that you found that as soon as the game started taking on that kind of stronger visual identity that did that 
sway you in certain areas of design? Did that did that change the way that you thought about the game or thought about the kind of the, the mechanics that you had and, and whether they needed to change or not? It's funny, you know, I I wish the answer to that was a more resounding <laughs> yes, but it actually the visual design of Antihero was one of its most challenging components for me. Um, mm. in, like in the sense that it, the artist that I was primarily working with and I took a very long time um, getting to the, you know, the style that we ended up on the sort mm. of, you know, dark big heads sort of, you know, pen and ink mm. looking. Um, we went through, we started with a very, very serious tone um, and it, it was just, you know, it was failing to get people excited. Like, I was less excited to mm. show the game. Um, I had the artist... I mean, so it turns out, you know, I'm not a very good uh, art director. And before I started Antihero, I was working at a game studio. And my sort of creative partner there was the um, the art director for the studio. And we worked mm. on, you know, basically every project I worked on was, was with him. And um, I realized after antihero started to be a real challenge in the in its visuals how much i had leaned on his expertise without even knowing mm. it i mean obviously mm. i knew that he was an excellent you know art director and and artist in his own right but um the yeah one of the things an art director needs to do is like marshal a game from uh you know from concept to completion in its visuals. Mm -hmm. And that's not a talent I had. And so, so uh, as a result, the game's mechanics were evolving just at a very different rate than, than its visuals were. Mm. Okay. So there wasn't, so, so the, uh, did the, did the visual identity of it then come kind of much later in in its life cycle, was it was it basically a com more or less a complete game by the time you found that that this theme for it that you, that you've settled on? No, it definitely wasn't a complete game, but it was. Um, but the game design, the core mechanics matured earlier than the visuals did. Now, the core mm -hmm. the mechanics of the game continued to you know change, and in some cases in some pretty dramatic ways up till you know maybe six months or so before launch at which point it was just okay now we have to finish creating content um but the so what i did arrive at pretty early was the the general the sort of non-visual aesthetic of the game so the idea that you know it would take place that it would be sort of oliver twist inspired and that mm -hmm. um you were sort of a, you know a fagin character <laughs> hiring little olivers and um, mm. And that it would be, you know, in a sort of gaslit Victorian London setting. Um, and my tendency is to sort of um, do like, well, well, what I like to see in games is uh, that I make uh, is charm, but also, you know, some darkness. And I, I sort of look at Roald Dahl as sort mm. of an, an mm. aesthetic touchstone. You know, he has... All of his books were, I mean, his his children's books at least were, uh, they contained a whole lot of danger and there were awful things happening to, you know, the, the children in them. But um, they were also like about, you know, very empowered children who were mm. uh, overcoming odds and, um, you know, existing in these sort of uh, 
brutal worlds that were, you know, often like the, their brutality was at the hands of, of adults. Um, mm. Mm. So that, and that, I think, you know, I hope come, comes through a lot in those, that sort of sensibility, um, I intend at least to come through an antihero. Uh, but the actual, you know, the, how that was, how that's conveyed through its visuals, that's what took a very long time to get to. Um, okay. Yeah, so we started mm-hmm. with the super serious, and then we, uh, when that wasn't working, we skewed really cute, like kind mm-hmm. of trying to emulate the Hero Academy style. Um, and that, you know, that wasn't working either. And so, you know, the third iteration of the game's visual identity was what you see now, sort of Edward Gorey inspired. Definitely, mm. people have you know compared its visual style to like Don't Starve, which I that is a game mm. that I really like a lot, and I think it's you know it just looks beautiful, um, and yeah, we, we were certainly inspired by visuals on Don't Starve. Mm. Mm. And the, I'm just looking through, looking over some of the um, the names of the buildings that are, that are on the map of the game that I'm playing. And I currently have three urchins occupying a trading house called the Salty Nonce. <laughs> and uh, there's a, a windy bottom, um, a, a obscure vice. There's, yeah, I mean, like, did the, in terms of, I guess, the, the, the sort of the written, the, the uh, literate identity of the, of the game when did that fit in was that because that's i mean that feels like it, it was inspired by or informed by the visuals it doesn't feel like you would have a, a trading house called the salty nonce if it was a like a super serious um grim and dark and kind of no humor um title so did did those kind of uh filter through absolutely that? yeah so, that yeah that was the sort of you know the, the sort of stuff that started happening once the game's like visual identity was really inspired. Also, as far as, you know, coming up with names for all of the districts and buildings that you visit in the game, mm. I was so amazed by I just went to the Wikipedia page for like districts in London and just used that as inspiration <laughs> and it's I mean it's insane. I cannot believe how awesome the names are. Uh and you know, that was I mean one of the easiest and most enjoyable parts of the game's development was just occasionally, you know, sitting down on a plane ride or something when I was otherwise mm. unoccupied mm. and sort of free associating, you know, ridiculous names uh, that's, that would sound vaguely like they might be, you know, London districts. Um, mm. Also, yeah. you know, I was reading uh, The Horror at Red Hook by H.P. Lovecraft and his language is just, it's so amazingly flowery and mm. and overwrought, but in this really wonderful way. And so there are, there are a bunch of district names that are just literally <laughs> just pairs of words that he was using in a completely <laughs> different context, but that just felt so appropriate. Mm. Yeah, I can I can see that. I think there are there are games that you know you can find online and on on YouTube. There are games that are played, uh, and it often is kind of a British person and an American person. And the British person will give a list, and it's like, is this a real place or not? Just give <laughs> yeah. a, a, throw out a name, and the the unsuspecting American has to decide whether that ridiculous name that's just been thrown out is a is a real place or not. And more often than not, it is because yeah, we we do have quite a lot of uh, 
ludicrously. And I think the thing is, we're not even really aware that, that we do have a lot of ludicrously named places. It just, um, it's not until it's pointed out that you realise that actually, yeah, that's. How did that come about? That's yeah, really and they're so yeah. evocative. Like, you can invent yeah. ridiculous stories for them without knowing anything, <laughs> you know, about, about how they got that name. And that was definitely the goal with, you know, I mean, the building names are such a small part of the game. It's just a list of, you know, a few hundred random phrases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, the, the idea was to sort of have implied narrative uh, mm. with, yeah. you know, with those names, which I think is actually much stronger than than overt narrative in games, especially games that are designed to be replayed over and over and over again. You know, in Antihero, mm-hmm. you're going to... Um, the multiplayer is, you know, it's the same thing over and over and over again, just like any multiplayer mm-hmm. game. Um, and, yeah, having having that implied narrative that uh, could be different from playthrough to playthrough was pretty important to me. For more on games and game creators, visit IndieByDesign.net, follow IndieByDesign on Twitter and Facebook, and on YouTube by searching IndieByDesign, where you'll also find game walkthroughs, design deep dives, and much more. Do also consider nipping over to Patreon.com slash IndieByDesign to see what we have going on over there, and to bag yourself some additional podcast content, as well as get the warm, fuzzy glow of helping us to make this podcast even better. Indie by Design podcast episodes are released every Wednesday, and we hope to have you back here next week. The music used in this episode is owned and provided by Ben Prunty.